Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. This is KRLD Business Editor David Johnson. For decades, News Radio 1080 has been the go-to station that's connected to the heartbeat that drives our economy. The business landscape in North Texas is what drives job and economic and population growth. And at the forefront of that growth is the Dallas Regional Chamber. As host of KRLD CEO Spotlight, I've been really fortunate to be directly tied to the companies and the leaders that have made DFW what it is today and what it'll look like for decades to come. And along the way, I've witnessed the incredible work of Dale Petrosky's team at the Dallas Regional Chamber. This year, KRLD has announced a new partnership with the Dallas Regional Chamber. Hi, this is David Rankin. And I'm Kristen Diaz. Last week, we had the opportunity to host the KRLD Afternoon News live from the Dallas Regional Chamber's annual meeting. And the meeting highlighted the success of the business community in our region and what's ahead. In addition, it featured an interview with retired U.S. Navy four-star Admiral William McRaven. He served as the ninth commander of the Special Operations Command. He's credited for organizing and overseeing the execution of Operation Neptune's Spear. That's the special ops raid that led to Osama bin Laden's death on May 2nd, 2011. If you have to get out of the car and run into the house, just tell your Alexa to play 1080 KRLD so you can continue listening or you can just open the Odyssey app, that's A-U-D-A-C-Y and play 1080 KRLD. We'll continue to have traffic and weather updates for you throughout the hour, but we'll break our normal format a bit to present to you the 2024 Dallas Regional Chambers annual meeting on News Radio 1080 KRLD. We start with incoming 2024 chair of the board and current CEO of the Dallas Mavericks, Sint Marshall. I am extremely delighted and honored to serve as the chair of the board of the best regional chamber on the planet. I did not see this moment in my future when we moved to Dallas. 10 years ago. Residing in the Dallas region was supposed to be temporary, but something happened. I fell in love with the people, the pace, public transportation, I loved art, and the philanthropic spirit of DFW. I fell in love with the employees of AT&T as we began our journey and achieved our mission to be recognized by Fortune as one of the best 100 companies to work for. I fell in love with our nonprofits in this region and with the folks at Dallas Casa as we work to serve and save our children in protective services. Ten months after my retirement from a 36-year career, I met and fell in love again with the employees at the Dallas Mavericks. We began our journey to be a great place to work, a place where every voice matters and everybody belongs. 
As the new CEO of the Mavs in 2018, I met a lot of great people, including Dale Petrosky, who is the co-chair of our Dallas Mavericks Advisory Council. I met John Elijah Day, Bob Pregada, Michelle Volpney, Raphael, all these great leaders. Thank you for your service to the board. And then seven years into my temporary Dallas stint, while having a ball, no pun intended, something else happened. We encountered a double crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic and the increased awareness of social injustice. And this is when I knew I was in the right place at the right time with the right people. In the summer of 2020, this business community took a bold stand and responded to both crises in a meaningful and remarkable way. We harnessed the power of our assets and seized the moment to take care of all of our citizens. We harnessed the power of our collective voices and declared that we would be the model for diversity, inclusion, fairness, and community engagement. We harnessed the power of small, medium, large businesses, public and private corporations, academic institutions, community organizations, and nonprofit entities. We harnessed our power and seized the moment to create a blueprint for building a prosperous future for all. We showed up and showed out for our citizens. Is there any doubt about why we are named the National Chamber of the Year? Let's give it up for the National Chamber of the Year. So wonderful people with a clear purpose, a clear sense of who we are and what we've accomplished over the last three years, this is the call to action for our board for 2024. Look at somebody and smile, look at them and smile, and I need you to say seize the moment. Now I thought about saying don't miss the moment, but then I realized that we typically don't do that. We don't miss our moments. And don't miss the moment sounded kind of negative, and if you know me, I'm a positive person. So, in the spirit of positivity and optimism, my five-part call to action is seize the moment. Number one, seize the moment to ensure our future by providing our children a great education. Number two, seize the moment to close the wealth gap by creating equitable jobs, equitable access to jobs, and career advancement. Number three, seize the moment to narrow health disparities by investing in the incredible biotech national initiatives that are being launched right here in Dallas. Seize the moment to double down on our corporate social responsibility efforts to address homelessness, food insecurity, hopelessness, domestic violence, digital divide, and sustainability. Number five, seize the moment to make our region the most inclusive place in the country. Now is our time. Now is the time to close the chapter on the tale of two cities and create one Dallas. This is indeed a special moment in time where we can look beyond today and create economic prosperity for generations to come. This is a moment in time to improve the quality of life for all people in this region. DRC family and friends, I stand here today seizing a moment that I really didn't see coming. It's the moment where a girl from the Easter Hill Public Housing Projects in Richmond, California, gets to serve as the chair of the board 
of the nation's best chamber, the Dallas Regional Chamber. I hope you are as fired up as I am about 2024. We've got good work to do, great people to do it. Let's harness our power once again and seize the moment. Thank you for this opportunity to serve. God bless you. So, I'm seizing the moment right now to introduce my good friend, Darcy Anderson, Vice Chairman of Hillwood Development Company, today's speaker sponsor. Please seize the moment and give it up for my good friend, Darcy. Thank you, Sint. I have vivid memories from four years ago, 2020, and Sint was the keynote speaker at our annual uh, DRC event at the, at the Anatole Hotel. Many of you were there. And Sint literally had every one of us dancing in the aisles of that ballroom. And it was, we, were, we were jazzed and it was a lot of fun. And Sint, I know that all my fellow DRC board members are looking forward to your inspirational leadership uh, this upcoming year. Seize the moment. Also, I'd like to give a big thanks to Dale and Angela and all of the DRC team for bringing us together today for this, for this great event here at uh, Fair Park. I'm very proud to represent our company, Hillwood, as a DRC board member and to support all the great things that the DRC does, not only for our city, but for our region. For those of you who are not familiar with Hillwood, we are one of the Pro companies and we were founded in 1986 by Ross Pro Jr. when he developed the Alliance Airport north of Fort Worth. In addition to warehouses and distribution centers across the United States and Europe, we build master plan, residential communities, and office urban developments. I'm also very proud of our heritage that goes back to Ross Perot Sr. and his hiring and supporting veterans. His support of the military was unbelievable and amazing. And we at Hillwood, we continue to make it a huge priority to hire veterans and whenever possible and wherever we can. Now it's my honor to introduce one of our nation's most distinguished and decorated veterans, U.S. Navy four-star Admiral Bill McRaven. Admiral McRaven graduated from ROTC at the University of Texas in 1977 and immediately went into the Navy and began a career as a U.S. Naval Special Operations Officer, where he served in every leadership capacity to include commander of the U.S. Special Operations Command. In 2001, Admiral McRaven planned and oversaw the execution of the special operations raid that led to the killing of Osama bin Laden. I've had the opportunity to hear him talk about the raid and tell some stories which are amazing. Hopefully we'll hear some of those today. In addition to that raid, he is famous for his University of Texas commencement address, Make Your Bed Every Morning. Now I'm proud to say that I subscribed to this ritual, which I started my plea beer at West Point, of course. I did not have a choice in doing that. Most recently, Admiral McRaven has been busy as a speaker and a writer, author, with five books on the New York Times bestseller list. I just read his most recent book, Wisdom of the Bullfrog, which I highly recommend. Leading the conversation today with Admiral McRaven will be Bob Pregada, CEO of Jacobs and the 2022 former chairman of the DRC board. 
Early in his career, Bob served for nine years as an officer in the U.S. Navy Civil Engineer Corps, and he is a proud graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. Dale, wherever you are, you took a real risk in inviting me, an Army guy, to introduce two distinguished sailors, and hopefully I haven't embarrassed you this afternoon. So please join me in welcoming Admiral McRaven and Bob Fregata to the stage. Thanks, everyone, for, uh, for having us. Looking forward to this uh, inspiring conversation with uh, one of my longtime heroes and, uh, and, and someone I've admired for several years. Admiral McRaven, thank you so much for, uh, for agreeing to be our keynote speaker today. It's, um, it's a true honor and privilege for all of us to have you here, and, uh, and especially for myself to have this opportunity to, uh, to sit down with you. Admiral, I don't know if you remember, but uh, the first time we met, even though I'd, I'd followed you for years, uh, was actually last August. Um, it was Dublin. the Navy Notre Dame game right. in Dublin, and uh, and we, my buddies and I, my classmates and I, were walking down the uh, street, and we said, "Wait a second, that's Admiral McRaven." It's obviously, very, very, very noticeable on the streets of Dublin, and uh, and so we stopped and we um, and we had a really great conversation with you. And so, literally a couple of weeks after that, Dale called me and said, "Hey, Bob, I've got an assignment for you. How would you like to uh, to, to moderate a conversation with Admiral McRaven?" And so it's a dream come true, and uh, really, really looking forward to. Um, of course, what Bob isn't telling you is the score of the game. That that was that a didn't side turn part. out so well yeah. for Navy, that was, but that, that was not a uh, that was not a good weekend. We had a lot of fun. We though. did have a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. So, a lot to share with the audience uh, and business and community leaders here that uh, don't want to hear me speak. They want to hear you speak. So, why don't we uh, why don't we jump right in? Darcy actually talked about uh, this uh, this this book. It's one of your several New York Times bestsellers, uh, "The Wisdom of the Bullfrog." Can you start off by explaining, you know, what, what it means to be a bullfrog and, uh, and where that originated? Yeah, so the, the term bullfrog uh, is given to the senior active duty SEAL. So remember, as Navy SEALs, we are first and foremost Navy frogmen. So you actually start off as tadpoles and you evolve into frogmen. And then when you are the oldest frogman, you are the bullfrog. Now I know Navy Captain Chris Cassidy is somewhere here in the audience. What I tell folks is, you know, a lot of us SEALs were just like Chris Cassidy. Uh, we go to the Naval Academy, then we go to SEAL training, we go into combat, we decide we're gonna go to MIT and pick up a PhD, and then we become an astronaut. And then after being an astronaut, we right. run the International Space Station. And now, uh, and that's kind of a typical profile for most SEALs. <laughs> so, uh, and if you believe that, uh, but Chris is here now running the, uh, the Medal of Honor Museum. Chris, it was great to see you today, you and Peggy. That's great, and Chris, Chris, uh, congratulations on all of your successes as well. You, uh, you definitely make us wonder what we've been doing with our lives for uh, for the last several years. Um, Admiral, you, you have a motto in the book, um, uh, uh, the wisdom of the bullfrog: when you command, command. Yeah. What, what's the significance of that phrase, and especially in moments that uh, maybe you're making some tough decisions? Yeah, interestingly enough, the, the story goes back to, uh, to Admiral Nimitz. And so when I was a midshipman at the University of Texas, uh, we learned about Nimitz. Of course, Nimitz was, uh, was born and raised in Fredericksburg, Texas. And, and the story goes uh, right after uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and this was actually the summer after. So this is 1942, the summer of 1942. And Nimitz is trying to make the decision on whether or not he's going to sail what remains of the fleet, the Navy fleet, out to this small island in the Pacific called Midway. 
and all of his staff has convinced him that this is a terrible idea, that uh, the Japanese are waiting for him at Midway, the Navy staff up in, in Washington, D.C. says this is a bad idea, but something in Nimitz's gut says this is something he needs to do. So he goes to see his old friend, Admiral Bull Halsey, and Halsey had gotten uh, shingles and was in the hospital there uh, in Pearl Harbor. And so he goes to see Halsey and he tells Halsey about his dilemma and says, look, I, you know, everybody's telling me this is a bad thing to do and, and uh, you know, I just want to get your thoughts on it. And Halsey, who was this kind of gruff, battle-hardened Navy Admiral, turns to Nimitz and says, well, Admiral, you used to tell me, when in command, command. And the point is, when you're in charge, you have to make the tough decisions. Uh, you got to take in all the best information you can. You got to assess things. But at the end of the day, as a leader, it's your decision. And you can't waffle. You can't be constrained by too much fear. As we used to say in the military, you can't take too much fear, counsel of your fears. You have to make the hard decisions. And Nimitz knew how to do that. Obviously, he sailed the fleet to Midway. It was a pivotal point in the, the war in the Pacific, and, uh, and Nimitz went on to, to greatness. That's inspiring. Going back to your books, The Hero Code. Can you explain what the code is, what you mean by it, and, and how this audience of business and community leaders could uh, can learn from it? Yeah, you know, a lot of times people kept asking me, who are your heroes? And uh, and some point in time, as I started to think about it, I thought, well, I'd like to write about the people that I've met in my career, uh, both in the military and, and after my time in the military, uh, and, and what were the traits that they had. But interestingly enough, when I started off, the first thing I had to do was define what a hero is. And so I kind of struggled with that, and I thought, well, let's go to the dictionary. And the dictionary had a great definition, which is a hero is someone we admire for their noble qualities. And when you begin to realize that, hey, not everybody has all the qualities, but there are people out there that you meet that have these remarkable noble qualities, that are honest, that are men and women of integrity, uh, that have a sense of humor when things are really, really tough. But I started the book um, with courage, because there's a quote in there from Churchill that says, courage is the most important quality because it guarantees all the rest. But I bookended it with forgiveness, because uh, I tell the story when I was in Afghanistan, we had a, a mission go horribly wrong uh, where some civilians got killed and I went down to apologize to the Afghan father and two of his children had been killed in this mission that had gone awry. And I remember talking to the, my, my Afghan counterpart before I went down and I said, what am I going to say to this father? I mean, what do you tell a grieving father that, you know, your soldiers have just inadvertently killed two of his children? And I remember my Afghan general saying to me, well, he will forgive you because it will not only relieve your burden, it will relieve his burden. And I went down and, uh, you know, if you can imagine being in a town hall with 200 angry Afghans, sitting down with a father and he was this weathered old man and I apologized, sincerely apologized, and he forgave me. And I often thought to myself, could I have been that good? Could I have forgiven somebody? And how hard is it to forgive? And if there's a noble quality out there, because today, you see, we find reasons to be mad at people all the time. We want to hold on to the anger because it, we feel like it empowers us. Uh, you know, you want a noble quality? Yeah, figure out how to forgive people. That is, uh, that is incredibly 
incredibly inspiring and so pertinent, especially in just the polarization we see in the world uh, today. No, thank you. Thank you for that. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. So speaking of significant events that that you led in the theater um, in and around Afghanistan, you're commonly admiral referred to as the architect and leader uh, of the Osama bin Laden raid which former President Barack Obama has said, one of the greatest intelligence and military operations in history. When you reflect back on that experience, what are some of the immediate thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, one, you know, I tell folks, uh, obviously the Navy SEALs and the helicopter pilots, we get a lot of credit for this mission, and, and I'm always very appreciative of that and very, very proud of my guys, but make no mistake about it, it was the hundreds of thousands of soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, civilians, foreign service officers, intelligence officers that were fighting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that deserve as much credit for the fight against al-Qaeda. We just happened to put the punctuation mark on it. But when I think back on the build-up to the raid and everything, a number of things impressed me. One, and I would tell you, irrespective of what side of the political aisle you might be on, uh, and I I worked in the George W. Bush administration at the National Security Council for a couple of years and loved doing that, but I watched uh, President Obama and his team and how they worked in the situation. Remember, this was very, very close hold. So there was just a small group of people uh, in the situation room, um, and the president always wanted to hear kind of contrary word. Who doesn't agree with the fact that should we do a raid? And interestingly enough, it was split. And there were always a lot of kind of heated discussions. But there was never any rancor. I mean, there was nobody trying to stab somebody in the back. They were trying to do the best for the country. Um, and, uh, and interestingly, at the end of the day, again, I would tell you it was kind of split. Secretary Gates, I've told this story before, uh, Secretary Gates was not in favor of the raid. And I remember at one point in time, after we'd had a meeting in the Situation Room, uh, I, I walked outside and I, I asked the Secretary to step aside for a second. I said, sir, I, I work for you. If, if you don't want me to advocate for the raid, just tell me and I'll back off. And, and what I thought was in an incredibly classy uh, move, he said, Bill, look, the president needs to have all the best military advice he can have. And so you continue to advocate for the raid, not advocate, but continue to talk about the raid, and then he will make that their decision. And of course, the president at the end of the day made the right decision. But the other thing I tell people is we didn't know that bin Laden was in the compound. 
So can you imagine a president of the United States getting ready to send 24 Navy SEALs from Afghanistan, 162 miles into Pakistan, to a compound that was in a built-up area that was three miles from the Pakistani West Point, three miles from a major infantry battalion, a mile from a police station, and oh, by the way, the Pakistanis have nuclear weapons. And you don't know that bin Laden is in that compound. And while we never talked about it, I'm sure somebody told President Obama, if this goes bad, you are a one-term president. And he made, again, when in command, command. He made the tough decision, and unfortunately, it was the right call. So, Admiral, go a little bit, if you can, a little deeper into that situation. Clearly, you've got iconic pictures of that briefing room that, you know, has the former president, Secretary Clinton, the then Vice President Biden. You're briefing your superiors back in Washington, D.C., but you are leading on the ground one of the most significant military events in history. Can you kind of walk us through, how did you manage that dynamic? Yeah, well, uh, the great thing about it was at this point in my career, uh, I had been a Navy SEAL for 34 years. Uh, I'd been in combat for in and off of almost six years at that point in time. So we had done thousands of similar missions. In fact, one of the reasons I built the plan to make it simple, fly in by helicopter, get the bad guy, put him on the helicopter and come back, we had a lot of other options available to us. We could have parachuted in, we could have come in by, you know, hidden in the back of a truck someplace, we had a whole number of options. And I said, no, we're gonna keep it simple because this is what we've been doing really since when I came into the fight in 2003. So it was this idea that we needed to keep it simple. And oh, by the way, uh, you know, I had true combat-tested SEALs and helicopter pilots. So there was nothing, I would say, tactically difficult about this mission. It was a, it was a long flight in, so I don't want to minimize the, the difficulty. But it wasn't something that we hadn't done time and time and time again. So uh, I, I don't want to say it was a, another day at the office. Right. Um, I understood, obviously, the political implications and the historical implications. I know, by the way, if this went south, uh, you know, things were not going to look well for the United States. So we knew that there was a lot riding on it. But at the end of the day, uh, I told the guys, look, you, you've all been here before. In fact, uh, the night before we do a, a big briefing, and, uh, and it's, uh, you know, I was in the hangar and there's, you know, about uh, 60 guys in there and they, they all go through their role in this. And at the end, it, it's kind of like the coach, you know, you got to get up and say something. I'm thinking, oh, I got to say something. <laughs> well, I like to play bad basketball. And, and guys know we used to play pickup basketball on Sundays at the motor pool. And so I got up and I said, uh, how many of you guys have seen the movie Hoosiers? And of course, half of them raised their hand and a couple of guys chuckled. And I said, if you're calling the movie Hoosiers, it's the story of this small town team that comes from small town Indiana. They go to Indianapolis and they're playing for the state championship. And the kids walk in, and of course, they're in awe. They're in this huge stadium. And the coach played by Gene Hackman tells one of the players, he said, uh, yeah, measure the height of the basket. Says, well, coach, it measures, it says it's 10 feet. Says measure the length of the court. It's 94 feet. He says, it's the same size of court that we play in in our town. Just do your job. And so I told him that story, and it was, look, we've done this sort of mission 100, 1,000 times before. Just do your job, and we're going to be fine. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And, and just the, the level of preparation that went into uh, that operation 
was significant. In fact, it's been documented years later that, um, and, and you said it, yeah. 165 phases right. went into planning, uh, planning the raid, and every possible scenario that could happen was uh, was was attempted to be rehearsed. But everyone, I got to believe that there probably was a surprise at some point, and if if there was. Um, how'd, you, how'd you deal with it? Yeah, interestingly enough, there wasn't anything that really? surprised us, um, which was why we spent so much time planning. I think there's always this belief that, you know, as Navy SEALs, guys just kind of grab their guns and they, they go run and do the mission. Of course, the movies, you know, they're always going to show you the sexy part, you know, right. the guys on target. What they don't show you is much guys on a whiteboard with, you know, markers uh, marking out the, the plan because that's 75% of the mission is the planning. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, we had planned for the potential for a helicopter to go down. Now, I expected it would go down under fire. As it turned out, the helicopter lost lift for a lot of reasons and careened off into the animal pen. But we had plan A, plan B, plan C, and plan D. So nothing that occurred uh, really was out of the, the plans that we had made. And I had a decision matrix set up so that, okay, if this happens, what decision do I make? What I didn't want to do was to have to come up with decisions in the middle of a tense situation. So once again, we rehearsed it, we planned it, so that I could make all the hard decisions, you know, sitting in my office with a cup of coffee long before the mission. Because I didn't want to sit there when things went south and go, oh, now what do I do? I'm going to say, okay, we decided if things go south, this is the decision I need to make. So nothing about the mission really surprised us. No, that, that is incredible, and it's a huge learnings there. Um, from how that translates into the uh, into the business environment. So, though I probably could spend the rest of the evening, I can see that the time clicker is here just on this topic itself, Admiral. Maybe maybe just to go into kind of translating some of that, you know, some not just the missions, but your entirety of your kind of your military career. How is that translated into um, into the civilian world, and probably more specifically? Uh, and I know now you, you've moved on for this position, but going into leading the largest university system in the country in your alma mater, how did that uh, how did that work? Well, the one thing you learn in the military, and I, I know it's true in corporate America as well, is you find the best people you can and you surround yourself with them. And I know Dr. David Daniel is here in the audience somewhere, uh, who was the president of UT Dallas. David was the first guy that I hired uh, because I knew I needed a strong deputy and he was absolutely fantastic. And I could not have done the job without David. So David, I know you're here somewhere. Thanks uh, for your incredible support. But, but again, I, I think it's true, and it was true in the military. Um, you know, when I first got into combat uh, in Iraq in 2003, I had not been in this kind of combat before. Um, and the very first night I arrived in Iraq, um, we were getting ready to go do a mission that was uh, out in Ramadi, about an hour or so flight from where we were in Baghdad. And, um, and the guys briefed me on it and they said, hey, sir, there's a bad guy. We're, it's going to be an easy mission. We're going to send a couple of helicopters in. Uh, Ranger's going to be with us. We're just going to surround it. We'll, the guy will probably give up easy and we'll grab him and come back. And I said, okay, I got it. Well, about a half an hour before they launched, the guys come running back into me and they say, hey, sir, the whole situation's changed. A lot of bad guys on target. Now we need five helicopters, more Rangers, probably going to get into a gunfight. Uh, I said, okay. Uh, so I grabbed the senior army officer and uh, helicopter pilot and the ground force guy and I called him to my office. I said, okay, guys, look me in the eye and tell me you can do this. 
and tell me what the risks are. I want to understand the risks. And so they kind of laid it out for me. And I said, okay, I'm good with this, go do the mission. And they did, and fortunately it was a successful mission. But I learned a couple things on that very first mission that night was one, you, you gotta rely on experience. Um, so whenever I was in a tough situation, somebody had always been in that situation before. Go find that person that has that experience, bring them in, listen to them, talk to them. All the books and all the training in the world, nothing wrong with that, but there's nothing quite like experience. Um, and then you just have to rely on the troops to do the job. Uh, you can't micromanage them. Once you launch them, you know, they're, they're gonna do the best they can and, and you gotta rely on that. Admiral, I think that's that's so pertinent. You know, I, I, I get asked the same question quite a bit, even though I, I did not have an esteemed uh, career as yourself and four-star admiral. But uh, as a as a you know a junior officer, uh, no four coming out, it is those types of experiences that, that live with you for uh, forever. So thank you uh, for for sharing that, um, Admiral. And, and I'm, I'm probably going to blush, even though you might not see it here. But I'll, I'll I'll give it a shot anyways. You are the hero to many myself included. Um, and, you know, we spoke earlier uh, about this, but you literally wrote a book called The Hero Code. Um, who, who would you consider as your hero, and what do we all have to learn from, from that? Yeah, well, fortunately, you know, I was raised uh, by two great parents, and uh, my father was an Air Force officer. Uh, he played football for the Cleveland Rams back in 1938, 1940, and then a bunch of his buddies signed up, uh, joined the Army Air Corps. He fought uh, in the European theater and then had a full career in the Air Force, and my mother was an East Texas school teacher from Grapeland, Texas, um, and they had those values that we think of as kind of classic American values, certainly from the greatest generation. But, um, but my time in the military, I mean, the people that inspired me every day were the young enlisted guys, uh, particularly after 9-11. I mean, you see these young kids, and they are, you know, 25 years old, they're E-5s, they're married with a couple of kids, and they are deploying again and again and again. And if you can't be inspired by that, Sorry. No, Admiral, that, that's, uh, that's very well said. That's very well said. Admiral, that, let, let's, let's stay on that topic for a moment, because it, it, well, it, uh, it is, it is, it seems like I, I might be <coughs> headed uh, down a direction here, yeah. but I'll, I'll uh, even with my hero sitting it's to my right, right here. Throw me a softball. No, right? no, I, I, I will, I will, I will. Uh, but, but it is something that, uh, that, that we in the business community and growing up in the military, you know, uh, hold near and dear to our heart, and that is the younger generation. Yeah. Yeah. And how can we as leaders uh, continue to make sure that the younger generation understands and is fully aware that they are the future? Yeah. Well, you know, I was often asked in my time as a chancellor, you know, what do you think about the millennials and the Gen Z? And I think my answer always surprised people when I said, I am the biggest fan of the millennials and the Gen Z that you'll ever meet. And I said, this narrative out there that they are these soft, entitled little snowflakes, uh, I'm quick to point out that you've never seen them in a firefight in Afghanistan or going to the University of Texas to make a better life for themselves. This, this is a great, great couple of generations. Uh, and, and, you know, the older generation always thinks that the new generation is softer. And I've, I've told the story when I was uh, stepping down as a chancellor, uh, they give you this, this wonderful house in, in Austin, and I was moving my boxes to our, our next place. And as I'm unpacking one of these boxes, 
I find a letter from my mother. Now, my mother passed away in 1986, and, um, and, and I, it was unopened. And I'm like, oh my gosh, and I see the writing on it, and I looked at the date on the letter, and it's the day that I went off to Navy SEAL training. And my mother had wanted to drive me to Navy SEAL training. Um, <laughs> Something my mom would do. And I told her, you cannot drive me to Navy SEAL training. <laughs> so she dropped me off at my aunt's house, or she stopped at my aunt's house in Scottsdale, and then I went on. So she has written this letter the day as I'm driving to Navy SEAL training. And uh, so I haven't seen this. She died in 1986. So I open this up. I'm real emotional. And my mother, again, she was an English teacher. So, and the women of that day, they tended to write a little bit more flowery. And so it starts off, dearest Bill. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my mother's handwriting. I can still smell the scent. And, uh, and she goes, you know, you're heading off uh, to San Diego. And I just want you to know that I don't think you're up for this harsh military training. <laughs> She goes, you've lived a country club life. We live near a nine-hole golf course, you know? And she goes on and on. I'm like, what? And she goes on and goes, oh, by the way, you're spoiled, underline. I'm like, I'm glad I didn't read this letter before I went to SEAL training. Uh, but, but I realized that my mother, you know, who was raised, or, you know, marching three miles through the snow to get to school, to her, I was, you know, this soft and entitled little snowflake, and uh, I thought I was the toughest kid in the world, you know. Um, so I think this is this is a common problem. As the, you know, the older generation always thinks the younger generation just doesn't have the moxie to. I will tell you, these kids are just as patriotic as their parents and grandparents. They are just as hardworking. They they are more entrepreneurial than our gen my generation was. I mean, these kids, and again, I'm I teach a graduate class at UT, and I will tell you, they think they can do anything and good on them because they think they can save the world and all the problems that we have. This is the generation we need. So, like I said, I'm their biggest fan. I'm on that one. I've got a copy. Admiral, I could keep going. I see some flashing red lights, but uh, maybe just one more. I know the audience, as well as myself, uh, very interested in this. What would you consider as your greatest accomplishment? Well, this sounds a little trite, but I've been married for 45 years. I've got three great kids, you know, and, and in the military, that's challenging. You know, we were moving every two years. I was, as a naval officer, you deploy as a matter of routine. It's not always just about war. Part of your, your job is to deploy overseas. And, you know, I was very, very lucky. I, I married the right woman early on. Uh, and, you know, were it not for her, I wouldn't be sitting in this chair right now. So if there's any accomplishments, uh, it's because of her. Uh, and, and again, I've got three great kids. They're all married. They're all doing well. I mean, how much better can life get? That's awesome. That, that's awesome. And uh, Admiral, there's a there's a saying that uh, that I that you you famously uh, uh, spoke about at the. Um, at the commencement speech at the University of Texas, it's not make your bed. I, I, I've used that one quite a bit as well, but it's one that uh, that I've, I've I've really taken to my own life, and it is a, a statement that you make that if I've learned anything in my travels around the world, it's the power of hope. And, uh, and Admiral, thank you for your wisdom, thank you for your candor, thank you for your emotion, and thank you for all that you've done for our country uh, and the world. It's been a real honor. Thank you, Bob. Thanks. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.